1858, Samuel Clemens, better known as the celebrated American author Mark Twain, and his brother Henry were preparing to work aboard the riverboat, the Pennsylvania. Prior to their departure, Mark Twain dreamt of his brother Henry's untimely death, and further, that Henry would be interred in a metal coffin, resting with a bouquet of white roses punctuated by a single red rose in its center. He was so upset by this dream that family members would reassure him that it was only a dream, and Twain even went so far as to discuss with his brother what they would do in case of an emergency, such as a shipboard explosion. Unfortunately, after their departure, there would be a boiler explosion. Upon entering the dead room and viewing his brother, Twain was shocked to see Henry laying in a quite expensive metal coffin, which had been purchased by local female admirers of Henry. The only thing missing from his dream was that bouquet, and as Samuel Clemens grieved over his brother, a local lady brought in that very bouquet of white roses punctuated by a single red rose. You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session. Tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. Welcome back, everyone. Our last episode had over a thousand listens from 25 different countries. We've had over 1,500 people total download the show. We wanted to thank everyone for their attention and support. It's incredibly exciting to know that other people around the world are interested in the same things we are and to learn that other people share our hunger for exploring the strange and unexplained. So we are eager to take a cue from y'all and begin stepping up our operations. We now have a Twitter account, Spectral Skull Session. You can find us at Skull Spectral. That's S-K-U-L-L-S-P-E-C-T-R-A-L. And what we plan to do is have that be a point of contact between us and the audience. And we also have an official email address, spectralskull at protonmail.com. Related to that, we want to let everyone know we are planning a Halloween special, Spectral Spook Session. We want to showcase true stories of encounters with the paranormal. So if you've had anything related to ghosts, spirits, demons, minor deities, and you want to share your story, you can write us. We love to put some of you on the air. And of course, if you don't want to be on air, we're open to reading your story. 
All right, I think that's all the housekeeping for today. Let's get started. So today we are discussing scientific evidence for the reality of psi, known by its older name, extrasensory perception, ESP. As you may know, psi by definition is any anomalous process of information or energy transfer that are currently unexplained in terms of known physical or biological mechanisms, including telepathy. It is direct mind-to-mind -mind communication, clairvoyance, or remote viewing, and the perception of things that are far away or physically occluded from direct line of sight. Precognition is the direct perception or intuiting of future events, and related to it is premonition, which is the apprehension of future events, having feelings. So we are focusing on scientific evidence for psi phenomena today. And in particular, Daryl Bim's famous decades of work showing very impressive evidence of psi phenomena. And we decided that we should have a little debate on this topic. And before we get into that, we do need to say something about what the intelligence community calls sources and methods. As we say in every episode, this show is about our small s skepticism, an anti-dogmatic exploration of the possibilities behind occult, supernatural, and paranormal phenomena. We are more interested in laying out the strengths and weaknesses and ramifications of different theories, models, and ways of approaching the unexplained. We are less interested in giving our audience answers. Of course, Chris and I may have our own opinions about what's going on, but the show aims to inform you about the different theories and models that are out there, rather than try to tell you what you should believe. But the idea in this episode is to do something slightly different from our past episodes. In this episode, we're planning on exploring the structure of possibilities, and we're going to do that by having a debate. And so I'm going to defend a particular set of experiments, experiments conducted by Daryl Bem, researcher at Cornell University. Chris is going to critique those experiments. And the hope is that by doing this, we can put both perspectives in the best possible light. And if I can be poetic for a moment, illuminate the space of reasons, that space that is circumscribed by the tension between these views. Okay, so to give you some background, uh, Dr. Daryl Bem is a respected social psychologist and professor emeritus at Cornell University. He started graduate school in the 1960s and was working in physics, but then he switched and did a PhD in psychology at the University of Michigan. Then he taught at Carnegie Mellon before getting a professorship at Cornell. He's published hundreds of articles in peer-reviewed scientific journals on a variety of subjects, but he also has a side interest in psi phenomena. He actually attends parapsychological uh, conventions, and he gives papers and publishes in parapsychological journals alongside his psychology work. Now, in 2011, he published an article in a psychology journal titled Feeling the Future, Experimental Evidence for Anomalous Retroactive Influences on Cognition and Effect. This is the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. This research was alarmingly weird. It contained nine distinct experiments 
with eight of which purporting to show strong evidence for psi phenomena. As Chris already mentioned, psi phenomenon is a catch-all term. It groups together telepathy, telekinesis, precognition, and remote viewing. So the BEM experiments are not specific to any particular one of those, but rather these are all supposed to be experiments that suggest at least one of the phenomenon is at work. So it could be multiple phenomenon or it could just be one in particular. Uh, at the beginning of the paper, Bem sets out a standard for demonstrating psi. He says that psi research faces two challenges. First, there's the empirical challenge, and then there's a theoretical one. The theoretical challenge is the need to produce well-controlled demonstrations that can be replicated by independent researchers. The theoretical challenge is finding an explanatory theory that is compatible with what we know about physical and biological principles. As Bem says, we tend to think that without meeting the theoretical challenge, a newly proposed phenomenon has to have extraordinary evidence in support of it. And so Bem set out to provide that extraordinary evidence. His lab at Cornell did nine different experiments. Each had at least 100 students participating. Some had as many as 150. I'm not going to describe each one in detail, but Bem's gimmick was to take well-accepted psychological phenomenon and then make them try to work backwards. That is, make them literally work backwards in time so that the only way he could get the results that you ordinarily find in psychological studies would be if, literally, something from the future affects something in the present. For example, there is the well-understood well phenomenon called practice effects in memory studies. If you practice at recalling words from a list by, say, writing them down, you'll recall more words later. Pretty simple. So Bem tried to do this in reverse. He asked students to remember as many as they possibly could of a list of 48 different words. He then asked them to recall those words, and he kept track of how well they did and which words they recalled. But then after the test, he asked them to practice, to write down the original list of words that they had already been tested on. Ordinarily, this would have no impact because they're studying the words, but they're studying too late. It's like studying after a test. And yet, he found a statistically significant impact when students were asked to study the words after they had already been tested on them. They tended to perform better than students who were not asked to study the words after the test. He did, as I said, nine different variations on this theme. I'm not going to go into each one in detail, but another one, the one that got most frequently reported in the press, was probably the simplest. He had a computer screen display with two different graphics showing curtains, and he told the subject, behind one curtain is a blank wall, and behind the other is an image. It may be a neutral image, it might be a, a nature image, or it could be an erotic image but it's your job to guess. What he found was that students overall got 53% of the guesses right for the erotic pictures. So when the pictures were just uh, pictures of nature, they were no better than chance. But when erotic pictures were on, on display, students tended to do slightly better than you would have expected by random chance. Wait, Dane, so you're saying 
according to BIM, that human beings have a built-in precognitive porn detector. Absolutely, Chris. That's exactly what BIM uh, was theorizing when he built this particular study. So he was thinking that if we have the ability to sense the future or to affect the future or to see things that are happening at a distance, these are all psi phenomena, that ability would have been naturally selected to promote our survival and reproduction. And thus he thought we would be sensitive to, uh, we'd be sensitive to danger and we'd also be sensitive to possible mating opportunities. Did uh, the men or the women tend to have the stronger porn detector, Dan? So originally, when he ran that first experiment there that I just mentioned, uh, only women were detecting the porn with any degree of regularity. And then they revised the images. So he says he picked more explicit material in order to get the same effect from the men. So apparently the image he, images he was originally using weren't intense enough to like trigger men's you know, uh, psi powers. Men need something, whatever it is, something more intense. All right, that's some interesting stuff. All of these sure. experiments within the study had p-values of 0. 0.0001. And that means there is a 1 in 10,000 chance of having gotten those results by, by sorry, at a point. A p-value of 0. 0.0001, which means that there is only a 1 in 10,000 chance that you would run the study and get the results without there being an effect. That is, that you would have run the study, there would be no phenomenon, but you would just randomly have lucked out and have gotten the results that Bem got. So you'll recall he used at least 100 students for each of these nine studies. He had each student do 36 trials, so that's 3,600 samples total for each particular study. And eight of them were statistically significant and I saw two, I counted two in the original study that had a p-value of uh, 0.0001. That's a very high p-value. So any single one of these would have been a full-blown research article all on its own. It would have been the kind of thing that could get published in a top-tier research journal. But Ben felt that since this was an extraordinary claim, he needed to have extraordinary evidence. Um, he ended up getting it published in a top-tier psychological research journal. And subsequently, I've seen reported interviews conducted by journalists with BEM's graduate students who carried out the experiments revealed that BEM uh, preferred to employ research staff who didn't even share his belief in psi phenomena. So many of his graduate students didn't believe in psi, and he would be enthusiastic about those who didn't believe in it at all. He was definitely not building a staff of people who were credulous, who were looking for the phenomenon. So he was creating opportunities for the phenomenon to fail to be found if it doesn't exist, all right? So these are all reasons I think that we should respect BEM and we should think that this is solid research. Now in defending the BEM experiments, I'm not saying that Psy is definitively real. Science doesn't work that way. Good research just lays the groundwork for further research. No single finding is ever to be expected as truth. That's just not how science works, especially in psychology, where the standards are such that a study can be accepted with a p-value of 0.05. At that rate, uh, one in 20 studies will be false positives. 
So that means there'll be no phenomenon there at all, but the researchers will get a result back. In fact, I've heard it said, you know, you should just regard one in 20 psych experiments as just being bogus. So one in 20 articles that you read in psych journals. Um, so my contention is simply that this is good research. He did research that met the standards for publication. He had it peer reviewed. It was accepted to a top tier research journal. He's a well-respected researcher at Cornell. This is the kind of thing that we should not regard as weird or bizarre, but should be, you know, legitimate, legitimate scientific research. Then people should be pursuing it. So there should be more enthusiasm and respect for parapsychology research in general. And Chris, that's my initial case for the BEM experiments. All right, very good, Dan. And I would absolutely agree with you that his methodology was on point given the field standards. However, this, this study set off what was called the replication crisis in psychology, and there's been some critics of the way that research has been done in this field. And what many of the critics, uh, many professional psychologists, academics in this field point to is that perhaps those research methodologies in and of themselves are not up to snuff if you can get findings like this. Um, Daniel Ingber, in an article for Slate, he talks about this and gives some background. And he says this was really kind of a, a call to action. This, this research project of BIMS, quote, landed like an ember in the underbrush and set his field ablaze. There's also methodological issues here that exist within BIM's work. And Alexander Panchin, a PhD from the Russian Academy of Sciences, points out in a lecture at the Future Biotech Winter Retreat of 2018 that this could not be replicated in other studies, right? So BIM kind of sets out the methodology, says, look, this is how you do these studies, go out and replicate them. And so people tried to do that. They tried to go forth and replicate this, and they, they found that they couldn't. And in fact, this isn't a problem that is just specific to BIM's experiment. It's a larger issue that exists within the field, and that is because the standard of research is too low to really be called science. But BIM himself might have some methodological bias that really links to his own history with psi phenomenon. And uh, one of the, so he's got a long history of this, but he also liked to close out at the end of each term. He'd do kind of a mentalist trick with his classes and then he'd tell his students, I don't really have ESP, but people can be kind of tricked into believing ESP. And now I, I don't think that BIM is a fraud. I think that BIM truly believes what he's doing, as you pointed out, and I'm agreeing with you 100%. He's following the methodology 
as it exists within the current standards of the field, right? But those are just not quite up to snuff. And other problems that existed with this in terms of the content that he was using. So again, in that Slate article, uh, a young research assistant of BIMS, Jade Wu was uh, interviewed and uh, he was trying to select the pornographic content for that famous study that you're talking about. And he says to her, quote, I'm gay, so I don't know what's sexy for heterosexuals, close quote. Jade is so uncomfortable by this. And she gets these pictures in like 1970s porn with uh, large amounts, lots of hair, afros, this types of things. And she's so embarrassed. She says, yeah, sure, sure. They're, they're erotic, I guess. But she really didn't think so. She just kind of lies. Right. And so even from that standpoint, there's some kind of meth methodological issues. And that's the stimuli that was used in his first experiment. So kind of at the ground level of this, and if if Wu was to be believed, and I think that she wouldn't have a reason for lying here, that that's problematic. Furthermore, E.G. Wagenmacher, a research methodologist who works at the University of Amsterdam, right, believes that this thing has a huge problem, and that's that there's not a line between research as exploration, right, and then research and study as confirmation. And this comes up in a paper of his, Why Psychologists Must Change the Way They Analyze Their Data, The Case of Psy, Commentary on BIM, 2011, that he publishes along with Wetzel's and Borspoon, right? Um, Panchin, further in that, that talk I was addressing, he kind of talks about this fallacy that exists when you don't have this clear dividing line. This is called the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, right? And the idea, so he kind of gives us, there's an analogy for this fallacy. And it's that you have someone, they shoot a bunch of bullets into the side of a barn, and then wherever the bullets are clustered more closely together, right, they... Um, Paint the, they paint the target and they paint the bullseye. So it's like, oh, look at how good of a job I did. I hit that bullseye there. That's just not how science works, right? When we confirm data, we have the hypothesis first, and then we go out and test that through confirmation. And what you end up with this, when you have this uh, Texas sharpshooter fallacies, you find false causes, right? If we even go into BIM's own words, and again, Panchin is pointing this out, BIM writes this textbook for PhD students in the field. And in a passage here is BIM talking about how to analyze data. And he says, quote, the data, analyze it from every angle. Analyze the sexes separately. Make up new composite indexes. If data suggest a new hypothesis, try to find new evidence for it elsewhere in the data. If you see dim traces of interesting patterns, try to reorganize the data to bring them into bolder relief. If there are participants you don't like, or trials, observers, or interviews who gave anomalous results from them, drop them temporarily. Go on a fishing expedition for something, anything interesting. Think of your data set as a jewel. Your task is to cut and polish it to select the facets to highlight in the and to craft the best setting for it okay 
just listening to that that is biased treatment of the data that is a false cause fallacy that is not how we do good science right uh, and later on when we get to Wagenmaker in that article that I was talking about why psychologists must change the way they analyze their data the case of Psy comment on Ben 2011 it really goes into depth here and they say that data doesn't work like this you have to have this clear line between that confirmation study and that exploratory study that one cannot quote torture the data until it confesses yeah. Chris, can I say something quickly about this? Yeah. So the Texas mm-hmm. sharpshooter problem is a it's really important, I think. And I, I to, just to make your point clear, um so a way in which you you could be using the Texas sharpshooter fallacy in an experiment. Um suppose I think that uh, a book is cursed, and I say if this book is cursed, here's my hypothesis. If this book is cursed, then if you were to roll a dice three times, you'll get six three times, right? Texas sharpshooter fallacy would be, I do that experiment over and over and over until I get three sixes. And then I say, oh, there it is. And maybe it's my thousandth time I've done that, right? It, does, it shouldn't even take a thousand times. But that's an example of that kind of problem that people are complaining about. I just want to make sure we're clear about that. Well, later on, and really the conclusion of that particular response to this research they just really talk about the statistical analysis being wrong and off and they say that you can't no matter how much data collect you collect in a meta analysis of multiple experiments and then that just basically means like people do all these experiments and they aggregate aggregate the data and they analyze it they say the analysis itself the way that it's being done is just wrong if you reinterpret this and you analyze the data using what's called a Bayesian analysis, that you'll, you'll get null results. And that will happen again and again. And they say they're not really even concerned with more experiments in this, uh, in terms of if we're going to apply the older standards of research and study, because we're just going to keep getting this bad evidence and this bad data. This really needs to be set up as a confirmatory study. Okay, are these all your criticisms? Those are the ones that, yes, the, the big ones that stand out, certainly. So I, here's, the, here's what I hear from, from you, Chris. There's your main points. One of your points is that, um, that, it kicked, that BEM's research kicked off a replication crisis, so it, it raised questions about the standards in psychology. It, it basically was so dramatic that psychologists said, well, we're, we must be doing something wrong if um, you can use our methods and you can find evidence for um, psi. There's one. Two, the studies don't replicate. There's your second criticism. Three, Bem has uh, some questionable uh, ways he conducts himself with his research staff. So the relations he has with his grad students and the way he has them build the research. And then there's the problem that he seems to be picking his hypotheses after he collects the data. And then there's also a miscellaneous set of concerns about whether he understands statistics in a, an acceptable way. I say that right because there's this question about whether he even knows how to structure uh, these problems in order to get meaningful results, the Bayesian thing. Well, 
so I think what's going on there, and, and to your point, Dane, and I can't quite recollect the name of uh, the individual individuals, but this is something that uh, academics have been sounding the alarm bells on well before the study happened in the mid 2000s. In the mid aughts, people were pointing out these issues because they were already having problems with replication. It was really just at this point where the findings were so extreme, right, that it really brings this to the forefront of people's minds who are quite alarmed by this. In terms of his understanding of how to analyze statistical data, what's being spoken of in the Wagenmaker article is really not a lack of understanding. It's just that the methodology being employed doesn't render valid results. And that's true of other experiments using a similar methodological process. Okay. So it sounds, again, there's, there's some statistical questions about whether he knows what he's doing or whether he's doing things correctly. Absolutely. Okay. So may I make my rebuttal? Please do. My rebuttal is going to center around basically just two points. The first point is that uh, in response to the idea that the studies can't be replicated. So Bem himself has successfully published in a peer-reviewed journal um, a meta-analysis of attempts at replicating his studies. And he said, actually, we have replicated it. So he doesn't always get, he says, Individual studies don't always replicate, but as he said in the original 2011 paper, not all studies will replicate since there's a random element to all psychological phenomenon. Sometimes you're going to get false negatives, just like earlier we are talking about false positives where there's no phenomenon, but you get a result that says there is. Sometimes, because the phenomenon has some random variance built into it, you'll get the result that there's no phenomenon even though there really is, because you just you just got bad luck. So he says it's totally to be expected. There's going to be some studies that give a null result. I don't think I'm saying that in the scientifically correct way. I don't think you can ever get a null result. But there are going to be some studies that don't confirm, right? Um, but he says, nevertheless, like when we did a meta-analysis, we found that actually we are getting consistent evidence that people are finding this phenomenon. They're not always finding it but it does seem to be there. So my main point there, he gets this published in another well-respected uh, peer-reviewed journal. And that should just establish in our minds that like this whole question about whether it's replicated or not, it's not a slam dunk thing that he can't replicate his research. Other people have been reading his research and looking at things and looking at the work he's doing and saying, well, yeah, actually it looks like some people are replicating the research or that there's a general trend towards replication. And then for all the other things you've mentioned, you say, um, you know, talking about the various issues with his, with his statistical research. I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a psychologist. I went to, I was in a psych research program very briefly. I was in a graduate program for one semester. Um, it was like 10 years ago. Um, you can always make these kinds of criticisms. And while these are fair criticisms within the world of science, my main contention is, that doesn't make him not a scientist. That doesn't make it bad research. So these aren't reasons to say like sci is garbage. They're reasons to say we got to keep looking into this. Like people got to keep following up. And Chris, when you look at just the sheer number of complaints that people have thrown against this guy, you know, it's just 
I've seen myself just doing the research. It's like dozen. I've seen at least a dozen different things. Early on, they were complaining they didn't know how to do T-tests, and then that got decisively refuted. Uh, like I said, their claims he didn't set up his experiments right that have been refuted. And it's sort of like these people are just looking for something that sticks. And if you just look at the diversity of criticism, that suggests to me this is an area of deep controversy among the scientists, right? And so there's no grounds for those of us who may be outside of the particular field to then say, oh, this isn't science, or this is bunk, or this isn't a real thing. So that's my point. Well, I think that's a really good point. Uh, and also, this listening to that, really, the, the one thing that stood out to me is you said, look, he's published in these prestigious academic journals. And I don't know if you use the word prestigious there, but these academic journals and how that adds this air of credibility or enhances the credibility here. Yeah. We also have to remember that these journals are interested in readership, and they're also largely interested in, in novelty to get those readers to get that interest, even in these professional academic fields. And one thing I want to point out is that this that Wagenmacher, Wetzel, and Morspoom article that I keep going back to is that they they could not get that published, and they kept getting rejected for publication based on the, the lack of novelty. And they eventually published in an open access journal, which has been kind of grabbed onto by the field. And people are like, yes, these are good points. These is good criticism, right? So I, I'm seeing bias too on the other end of the kind of, I don't want, what, know if I want to call it pro-sci, but really a pro-novelty bias that has perhaps allowed this to gain more traction than it might have would have otherwise, as we have, you know, some of the strongest criticisms that people are having difficulty finding publication because they aren't sexy enough, right? Yeah, but when, if, if the publications aren't, he, he is sexy research. So you're saying that that's a reason why they, they should be biased in favor of him? So it's another reason yeah. to doubt. The, so maybe he got published just because he had some sexy findings? Yeah, I think so. And mm. uh, sexy findings and sexy stimuli in his studies, for sure. So I guess one thing I think that maybe contradicts that, Bem mentions in his own 2011 paper, he mentions another article where they asked psychologists about psi phenomenon. They said, and he said 34% of psychologists said psi is impossible. Contrast that with the natural scientists in the same survey, Natural scientists said uh, only 2% of them felt that it was impossible. And Beb's point there is that there is clearly a very intense bias among psychologists against extraordinary phenomena. Well, I, I think, too, that this points to, again, the issue with uh, replication gate here, or replicate, is that perhaps there's just a larger problem in the field of psychology in terms of methodology that's being employed. And again, that goes to the point of how could BIM have followed through with all the processes using all of the methodology and the experimentation standards and that delivered this result? Well, maybe the field needs to be revisited, particularly the way that it's done in the modern age. Yeah, I just think that shows how closed-minded these psychologists have to be. If your attitude is, oh my God, we, we can't allow psi phenomenon to be real. We'd better fundamentally revise our entire field to get rid of it. Like, that's what prejudice looks like. All right, do you have any last, do you have any big picture thoughts, Chris, about 
Like, what should our audience be taking away from this stuff? Yeah, I just want to say as a caveat that, you know, Chris and I are not speaking as scientists or speaking for the scientific community. We don't have formal training in the field of psychology. Um, and so this should be taken with, you know, a certain amount of grain of salt, that this is an informed uh, take on the subject matter from a non-expert point of view. Yeah, absolutely. And while we do have some pretty significant uh, academic training here, I think one of the things that we want our audiences to take away from this particular episode is how to think logically and rationally uh, about these subject matters and these ideas with an open mind, that small s skepticism we keep coming back to. And I think that, you know, uh, I, I, I think that both Dane and I would agree that Psy is possible, perhaps even probable, right, as we discuss this issue, but we don't know. And we leave it to you as our listeners to take this information, these arguments, do your own research and your own thinking, and to come to your own conclusions. Absolutely. The truth is out there. And Dane, I'd, I'd ask that on that note, you take us out tonight discussing some new scientific research that speaks to a possibility. How could psi phenomenon exist? So one of the things Chris said that I think is really worth repeating, do your own research. And when I was reading the BEM 2011 paper, I came across an argument that was completely novel, that was philosophically quite deep, and that I have not heard made anywhere else. Bem says that in order for people to accept that a phenomenon is real, they need to be able to see how it works. This is the theoretical challenge. The theoretical challenge is almost always met by explicating the novel in terms of the familiar. For example, people could not accept that fixed wing craft could fly until they were made to understand that a pressure differential over the wing exerts an upward pull, analogous to a suction. The idea of a suction acting on the wing makes lift familiar and thus believable. But psi phenomenon involves spooky action at a distance and future events affecting the present. There is nothing in our everyday experience that we can relate that to. So if Psy is real, it may be psychologically very hard for people to ever accept it. On that note, everyone, stay strange. And stay sane.